So again, this is Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, and then Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Leo. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It is good to be with you, and I think we have the most people sick since... Ever. I think even during the biggest COVID spikes, not as many people were sick. So for those of you who aren't here, I really hope that you feel better soon and uh, you know where to find us if you need just a meal delivered to your house or something like that. So yeah, hope those of you who are sick uh, feel better soon. And for those of you who are new joining us for the first time, a warm welcome to you. Uh, My name is Steve and uh, we are working through the Ten Commandments uh, this late spring leading into summer. And what we saw in the first week is the most important thing about the Ten Commandments is that they don't start with a command. They start with a preface. And so if you see in verse 2 of chapter 20 of Exodus, God tells Moses, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is crucial, and this needs to frame everything about the commandments, because what this does is it prevents us from falling into a legalistic bent toward the Lord. Because notice he doesn't say, I'm going to give you a bunch of commands, and if you obey them, I'll bring you out of Egypt. He redeems them from Egypt, and he says, now that you're in relationship with me, here's how you're to live. And so once, and it's similar for us today, just like in the Old Testament, in the gospel through Jesus, we've been brought into God's family by grace. And now that we're in his family, The commandments God gives us are the ways by which we actually enjoy God and the ways by which we love other people better. And this whole idea that rules help us enjoy God and love other people better, it's counterintuitive because especially in America, you know, we tend to pit love and rules or quote unquote authenticity and rules against each other. Uh, When in reality, rules enable relationships. And an example that a teacher, Jen Wilkin, gives is she says, imagine if you are a substitute teacher and you're subbing in for a first grade class. Which teacher would you rather sub for? The teacher who has, you know, clearly posted rules on the blackboard that the students more or less follow, or the teacher who tells her class every day, the only rule is 
your passions and emotions are your God. And so follow them as far as they will take you, right? Like it's obvious what classroom you would want to sub for and why, because rules, they, they not only help the students in this case, right, respect the leader, but they also help the students relate to one another well. So they actually love one another and aren't, you know, mean to one another and so forth. And so, so it is with the commandments. God makes them uber clear to us so that we know how to enjoy him and love others. And so uh, perhaps, I mean, I don't want to say more than the other commandments, but certainly in a significant way, today with the second commandment, we're really going to see how this commandment augments our relationship, uh, particularly with the Lord. Uh, The first five commandments or so relate vertically to God, and then the second half relate more to loving neighbors, just a way to remember the commandments. And so here's what we see in the second commandment about not making a graven image. Uh, In this commandment, we see one prohibition and four promises, all right? One prohibition, four promises. You ready? All right, let's go. So the prohibition, verse four. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. We'll pause here for a minute. So we read this and we think, easy enough. Okay, don't take out your whittling kit and carve a block of wood and then bow down to it as God, right? It's, it sounds easy, but we know it can't be easy because as Moses, he's up on, on Mount Sinai right now receiving the law from God. The Israelites violate this commandment before Moses can even get off the mountain. And anytime we see the Israelites being fools, we shouldn't, you know, roll our eyes at them. We should say, "Uh uh-oh, because the Israelites are a reflection of us. And what the Israelites do, and you can read this about, you can read about this in Exodus 32, is they take a bunch of gold that they took from the Egyptians, gold that was supposed to be used for God's temple, mind you, and they melt it down and they use it to fashion a golden calf. And what's interesting is, they don't say, oh, this is a different God. No, they actually allude to the fact that this golden calf is simply, they say, you know, let's make a, a feast day to the Lord as they're looking at the calf. So what they're doing is they're saying, okay, God is formless. We're just trying to make him into an image so we can try to, you know, capture him and worship him and thank him for bringing us out of Egypt. Now, you might ask, okay, what is the big deal about that? And you don't have to think long before realizing the, the problem with the calf, or the, you know, the problem with images more broadly, but let's look at the calf, is you can see immediately the number of lies it tells about God. Okay, so calf is created, God is eternal. Calf is impotent, can't do anything. God is powerful. We could list uh, a, a thousand things, but that's the idea. And so what we see here in this prohibition to not make an image out of God is The problem with making an image is either it lies about God explicitly or it lies about God through misplaced emphasis. Okay, misplaced emphasis. So just some examples. You ever notice that for people, and you probably find this in your own life, like the images that people tend to select when they think of God correspond to their natural disposition. So the sentimental types you know, who say, well, God is a God of love, you know, may primarily have in their mind, you know, that painting my parents had in my house of Jesus holding the sheep. Like, that's, that's the only or main image they, they think about God through. 
or something I've noticed, I mean, especially since 2016 or so, but is online, uh, you have, you know, a number of uh, professing Christians who make a lot of very hostile and combative comments online. And this is a pattern I see almost over and over again. Someone inevitably <laughs> comments, hey, you know, you proclaim to follow Jesus. Don't you think that maybe, like, not being a jerk is a good way to start? And nine times out of ten, they respond with, well, you know, don't you know Jesus drove out the money changers out of, out of the temple? Like, because that's the image they have in their mind. And yeah, Jesus did. How many hundreds of times did he go to the temple, though? <laughs> you know, but like, that's the image that they want to hold to, right? Because it corresponds with their disposition. And so one reason why we have to develop a more expanded view of God, why reading the entire Bible for you, you know, devotionally and private, why we want to go through the whole Bible here is so important, because it, it makes sure that we don't remain locked into our natural temperament. Because even if the image you have of God is correct, your relationship with God and then therefore your relationship with other people is still going to be very limited, right? Because you're locking yourself into only one dimension of God. Okay, so that's one danger of an image. We tend to place a misplaced emphasis on God. But there's another reason why God prohibits making an image. And so let's go back to the calf. I think the most appealing part about the calf is it doesn't speak. So, right? So, it, it can't challenge you. And so, one of the ways that we tend to make God into an image is we amplify his voice to make him care about the things that we want to care about, right? But then we mute him or silence him about the things that we don't want him to, carry about, to care about. And so, some of us, you know, may turn up God's voice when it comes to the fact that um, racism and discrimination are evil, and they are. But then mute God when it comes to the fact that we should be sacrificially generous with our money towards his kingdom. Or we might listen to God when it comes to our sexuality, right? But then we mute God with respect to his deep concern for the refugee, the poor, and the immigrant. Or even just more broadly, Often we tend to just assume God likes the people we like and he hates the people we hate, <laughs> right? We don't want to hear about how he tells us to treat those we hate. And uh, the author Anne Lamont, uh, she put it this way where she said, something to the effect of, she says, you can assume you've made God into your own image if it turns out this God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> like, that's so good. And it's so true. And so that, that's another way we tend to make God into an image, right, is we just silence him on things we, we don't want him to talk about. And so as we transition from this prohibition into the promises we get, which are, are quite incredible, um, something that I think needs to be addressed because of what has been dominating your news feeds over the past two weeks is something that this commandment uh, clearly applies to. And that's the leaked opinion, right, on the... On the, that the Supreme Court leaked about the Roe case. And this whole topic, right, is so charged with pain and emotion, and rightly so. Um, and because it is, often we don't talk about it in the church. Or if we do, we talk about it very poorly. 
And so you just need to know, especially if you're newer here, like how we approach things here in the church is we try our best to not skirt around hard issues, and we also <laughs> try our best to avoid that really unhealthy dynamic you may have had with your family growing up at the dinner table where something's really wrong, but we're just not going to talk about it because that'd be awkward. Okay, and so just in that spirit, um, just three considerations here as we, as we think about this. Um, the first is, I know, even in a room of this size, there are people here who desperately don't want this ruling to pass. Other people here who desperately do want this ruling to pass. Others of you, you're, maybe you're not sure what should happen. And I just want you to know, um, especially if you're someone who's been hurt by the church with something related to this topic, whether it's because you had an abortion or because you have or had an opinion you know, that was different than the majority of people in your church, I just want to say you are welcome here. And I am so sorry that the church has not always been a space where you can talk about this stuff and process this stuff. And the Lord loves you deeply. So that's the first thing. Wherever you, you land on this issue, I just need you to know that you're absolutely welcome here. Okay. Second consideration we have to th keep in mind is the scriptures teach us to treat our opponents with gentleness and respect. And this isn't a qualified gentleness and respect where treat your opponents with gentleness and respect unless they disagree with you politically. Okay, yeah, yeah, we can disagree. And I mean, these are significant issues that we're talking So it doesn't mean don't have conviction. But the tone you carry, whether you're just with your couple friends who like already agree with you on everything or online or anything, the, you, just the tone you carry and the posture you have toward other people really matters because it's nothing less than bearing witness to the Jesus, right, who told us to love our enemies and to pray for them. So that's number two. Like, we have to be, and I think you guys, so many of you do this so well, but we can't, especially in these conversations where emotions start to get, you know, so riled up, we, we have to remember this. And then number three. So the pulpit is not a place, right, to chase headlines or for whoever's preaching up here to try to rally you guys behind a political party, right, or at least given our current political system, it's just not how it should be. Uh, but given just the volume of what's going on and how much I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, are swimming in these headlines and comments currently, we're not doing you any favors if we're not talking about this here, right? And helping you think through a Christ-shaped lens and helping you hold to something deeper and more eternal than the latest rage cycle and the latest Supreme Court deliberation, okay? And so just one principle here is I just want to encourage you guys uh, with this topic. And we're talking about not making God in an image, i.e. not silencing him. Because here's what the way our, our party system tries to do, right? And again, my, I'm not a political policy expert, clearly. Just my job is to try to help you guys think about this scripturally and, and Christ in a Christ-centered way. How most, you know, the two parties and, and most people in our culture and our friend groups, what they try to do is to get us to choose a side right, that either pits the mother and father against the baby or pits the baby against the mother and father. And so what happens is, is we're told to, you know, implicitly or explicitly draw a line down the middle where we say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight for the unborn, but I'm not going to fight for the mother and the father who are involved with this or to try to better the systems that make even an abortion desirable or something that somebody feels like they need to do, right? Or on the other hand, Okay, we're pushed to fight for the mother and father and the unjust systems, but not fight 
for the unborn. And what we see in Scripture is a mother and a father are deeply sacred to God. And a baby who's still in the womb is deeply sacred to God. And so it's not one here, one I mean, both image bearers. And that's where we have to start. And I understand there, there's a million pain points and points of complexity, because even with the most just laws, right, it's going to create all sorts of issues downstream. So I'm not necessarily telling you, okay, like, here's, here's where you need to land on a particular public policy, but we have to start here with the unborn and the mother and father and everybody connected as image bearers, and as best as possible, right, fight for the well-being of both. And this is hard, I mean, either just due to our natural temperament or due to, you know, we may make enemies within our own, our own tribes because these are just categories that people aren't used to thinking. But I just want to, and maybe some of you are really upset with me right now, but I just, I'm just trying to present to you what Scripture clearly shows you because as, as believers, we should be operating out of a kingdom that really does its best to give life to all, okay? So I just want to address that very briefly and as best as I can pastorally with you guys because um, we're thinking about this, right, all week, all right? So, second commandment. Okay, that, w- that was heavy, maybe, but second commandment. Okay, don't misplace an emphasis on God. Um, also, be, be very mindful of muting him where he clearly speaks. So that's the prohibition. Don't make God a new image. Now, what I love about God is anytime he gives us a prohibition is he gives us promises. So any of the Ten Commandments, if you turn them inside out, you get promises from the Lord, and he empowers you by his Spirit to actually obey what, what he gives us. And so here are four promises that God gives us when it comes to when we walk in line with, um, with the commandments. And the first promise we get from God is that when we follow this commandment, we get increased intimacy with God, increased intimacy. So imagine a husband whose wife is allergic to flowers, and every two weeks, he goes out and he purchases her flowers. <laughs> and every time he goes and buys her, she's like, what are you doing? And he goes, well, you know, it just makes me feel really good to imagine you liking flowers, and so I'm just going to keep doing it. Okay, is that husband wife going to have more or less intimacy in the relationship? Less, right? It doesn't take a romantic to look at that husband and say, dude, you're not just being airheaded. Okay, you're dehumanizing her by making her into your image. And with God, when we look at what he reveals about himself and the commandments he gives us in scripture, when we say, oh, I'll take this, but not that. I want you to work on me here, but I don't want you to change me here. What we're doing is the equivalent of insisting on just continuing to give God flowers, even though he says, I hate flowers. Pretty sure God loves flowers, by the way, right? But just that's the equivalent. And so just as you think about this, just think about the areas where, and often we need community to help us see this, but where are the areas where you tend to resist the things the Lord says? Right, so it, it may be in the realm of caring for the poor. Uh, we have a great mercy ministry for that. Okay, it might be in the realm of uh, Christ making it very clear to be involved with the local church if you follow him. It might be in the realm of sexuality. It might be in the realm of giving generously of your finances. Right, all of us are going to have areas, right, where it, it pricks us when we think about obeying the Lord there. But what the promise is, contrary to God's law when we follow it, inhibiting intimacy, it, ha- it enhances it, 
right? Similar, go back to the husband and wife, right? If he's actually walking in accordance to the character of his wife and looking at what she likes and doesn't like, they're going to have more intimacy. And for us, oftentimes, not always, but sometimes when we, when we feel a disconnect between us and the Lord, oftentimes it's just a matter of walking in his ways and obeying him. And as we do that, we actually get to experience him more. Because that, that's the first promise. It's a promise. We get increased intimacy from God and we obey the fullness of the Lord. Okay, number two, what's the second promise we get? Expanded worship of God. Expanded worship. So this is a prohibition, but counterintuitively, this is a prohibition that prevents us from limiting our worship of God, and instead it expands it. And here's what I mean. So some of you may have friends, or for some of you, you may be this person, where when there's a great book you like and a movie comes out that's a, you know, it's the movie version of, what's that called, like a video adaptation, something, of the book, you refuse to see it, okay? And so this happened, I had, I had a number of friends, uh, and Kelsey was this way, um, with Harry Potter, right? Like, loved Harry Potter. So when the movies came out, just wasn't going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Uh, Ender's Game, atrocious adaptation, right, of a great book. And why do we do this? I think one of the biggest reasons is because we're afraid, right, that we go, when we go from audio-only format to video, where we see images of this story, now it it locks us into the images that the creators gave us, right, and so it, it stops our reflection, it stops our imagination, and the story in a lot of ways actually becomes more narrow, right, because we can't keep imagining, based on the words alone. And so what's really neat about God-forbidding images is it's actually, it's an invitation to expand our worship of him. Now, yes, we need to use scripture to keep guardrails so we don't go, okay, too cray-cray with like what we just, we want to make up about God. But this should push us, you know, as we, as we think about worship of the the Lord. So in one sense, it should push you, even, um, this is a tangential application, but it's an application when you think about the worship style here, for a lot of people, I mean, music is just very polarizing. And if it's a song or a style that you just don't like, you just shut down and you zone out. You're like, oh, this is stupid. I'm not even going to sing along, right? But if it's like a, a beat or, or a style that you love, like, you're, you know, you're going. Even in this church, you might start clapping a little bit. But an encouragement here is regardless of the style of song, right, that's being played or the leader who's up here leading, just want to encourage you to step into the genres that maybe you don't naturally resonate with, uh, because you'll actually get to experience more of the Lord. And another application of this is, so the, the first one with increased intimacy, that had a bit more of an edge, right, with thinking about the commands we don't like. With expanded worship, just think about the, the images of God in, in, that you have in your mind, and consider if they may be limited. So, you know, over Easter, we looked at the story Jesus tells of the Father sprinting to embrace his Son, what if that only scratches the surface of God's happiness toward you? Right? Or as you think about God's presence with you, God giving you wisdom, Jesus interceding for you and praying for you, what if that only scratches the surface of the character of the one you're in communion with? And it does, because he's an infinite God. Okay, so we get expanded worship when we don't reduce him to an image. Number three, we get to give joy to others. Okay, give joys to others. I love this. And it comes from a verse that initially looks very mean. Okay, so second half of verse five. 
Okay, so don't bow down to images or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, am a, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What is that about? Okay, so visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to third and fourth generation, but showing steadfast love to, the, to thousands of generations to those who love me. And what God's getting at here is the simple fact that sin for the worse and obedience for the better always have social ramifications. Always. And social and generational ramifications. And, you know, I mean, you all know, I'm, I'm sure the older you get, the more you realize that the, the vices and weaknesses and destructive habits of your parents and grandparents and the, the great parts about your parents and grandparents have radical effects downstream on you, you know, for better and for worse. And as you think about, you know, pastors or teachers or people who have taught you about God, I mean, think about how them making God into an image has impacted you. So for some of you, like the main image of God you had growing up was a God of hard edges and a God of wrath and a God who hates to show kindness and patience and doesn't actually move toward you in your sickness and weakness rather than away. Think of the impact that's had on you. Okay, others of you may have been taught or just shown growing up that God is a God of primarily feeling and no thought. Okay, so if you're not weeping in church every Sunday, then something must be wrong with your relationship with Jesus. Or if you're sad or depressed, you must be angering God. Okay, because if you loved him more, you wouldn't feel that way. Okay, think of the impact that's had on you. That's also why even just me preaching is such a weighty, weighty endeavor. Okay, because I just, I can't try as I may, you know, give you like the perfect and full image of God. But the positive side of this is the more you grow in worshiping the fullness of God and obeying the fullness of God, this brings so much joy to other people. Okay, and so notice, notice how he says iniquity is visited to the third and fourth generation, but steadfast love to thousands of generations. What God's saying here is I limit the effects of sin, but I love to multiply the effects of worship and obedience to others. Okay, and so when, when you worship God in this way and obey him, you actually impact some people, some people you're never going to see in this manner. Okay, that's, that's really powerful. Number four, okay, not just joy to others, but it gives joy to you. And that's what we see in the, the passage you read in Colossians 1. <clears throat> and so we're told not to make God into, a mi- to, into an image because images diminish God, they manipulate God, they mute God. Okay, so we are not to make an image. But 2,000 years ago, God did something that confounds the sensibilities he made himself into an image. He made himself into a, a human. And what we're told about Jesus in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. In him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on image, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And so all the images we make, they reduce God, they can't speak to you, and they can't heal you because they can't make you new. But in Jesus, the eternal God made visible, we see someone absolutely surprising and someone so beautiful that not even our best artists could have come up with. Okay, because when you look at the life, I just consider the supreme beauty of Jesus. He combines, he combines tenderness without weakness, right? strength without harshness, holiness without self-absorption, passion without prejudice. He was hungry, but he fed thousands. He was wearied, but he is the rest for the weary and the heavy laden. He weeps, and he causes tears to seize. And maybe most beautiful of all, Jesus is infinite in power, but he only uses his power to heal. He raised a little girl from the dead. He gave a paralytic the ability to dance. He dried Mary's tears, and then he went to the cross to use his power to do all of those things for you. Because while we make God into an image in order to silence him and to diminish him, to use for our own ends, Jesus diminished himself in order to make you a child and friend and make you whole. And here's why this gives you joy, because Jesus' works are so powerful that what are we told at the end of Colossians 1 and verse 20? Through Jesus, he reconciles us to himself. So what this means is the more you get to know Jesus, the more you obey Jesus, you actually become more like Jesus. Your emotional world expands, right? You become more resilient without being cynical. You can become more passionate, but without being harsh toward those who oppose you. And maybe most comforting of all, you can become the kind of person who still has a fountain of joy underneath your tears because you know that sorrow and death and sin have been broken. So much joy to be had for you as you're actually made like Jesus. The Colossians 1, 15 through 20, Jesus. And so currently, we are an audio-based people, right? We're told to listen to the, to the Lord and what he's told us in his word. But what we're told in 1 John 3 is that one day we will be like Jesus fully because we will see him as he is. And what that day will be like, it'll be better than the long-anticipated knock on your front door of the best friend you haven't seen in so long. You know, get to see him and be hugged by him and touched him by him and made fully new. And as we wait for that day, 
Okay, we worship the fullness of God as best as we can, have more intimacy with him, expanded worship, more joy for others and for us as well. Let's pray.